Hey, don't worry. I know we, uh, we're on a tight schedule this morning. I'm not going to preach overtime. The Discover class takes place after this service today, our monthly Discover class, 30 minutes long. We're going to keep that time frame sharp because I know the, the most important event in the world is taking place at 6.30 this afternoon. Most important event in all the sports kingdom. The two most important words in sports. And what are they? Taylor Swift. That's right. It's going to be at the, the Super Bowl. So I uh, know we have some guests here this morning. We want to welcome you. I met three new families. I think there's even more than that. We're glad that you're here. And just so we, we have been in a sermon series for the last four or five weeks entitled The Journey. And we are journeying with Jesus. The life of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke from his birth to death to resurrection. So we'll conclude this sermon series on Easter Sunday in March. And uh, each Sunday we're looking at a different episode from the life of Jesus in Luke and making some applications. And today I simply want us to see that this is an unconventional journey. The journey is an unconventional journey. You know what I mean by unconventional? It means not conventional. And I want us to see that, I want us to see that this morning in three different ways. And first of all, unconventional house. Unconventional house. Luke chapter 5 verse 17, Jesus entered Capernaum and it was reported that he was in the house. One day while Jesus was teaching. It's Mark that adds the little detail about the house here. The house he's talking about is the house of Simon Peter. So Capernaum is on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. And Simon Peter had a house there. And the events we're going to be looking at, the teaching and the healing and the salvation, they all take place in that house. Now that house, I'm going to show you a picture of that house. I've got a slide of it for you. This is Peter's house, archaeologists have identified it with a very high degree of certainty. Some of the folks here this morning have, you are here, but you have been there. You have been to Peter's house by the Sea of Galilee. There was a big group that went from Vero Christian Church to Israel back in the 1980s. Uh, if, you, if you've if you been there, would you raise your hand? I know HT has back there. All right, a couple of Joe and Diane, there's some back there. Okay, me too, my hand is up. I've been there to Peter's house and then went and had... We had lunch by the Sea of Galilee where we ate Peter's fish. And Peter's fish is a tilapia that's caught right there in the Sea of Galilee. That's the kind of fish that are in there. It's a whole fish, got the head on it. The eyeball is staring at you while you eat it. In fact, I, somebody told me that Judy Lane, when she went there to the Holy Lane, Holy Lane was so freaked out by that eyeball, she put a napkin over the head of the fish so she wouldn't have him staring at her while she was eating it. Uh, so, so what happens, the kind of the process, the archaeologically what they've discovered is that when somebody became famous, and of course when Peter was growing up there, nobody would have paid any attention to it, but after it became the apostle Peter, the Christians quickly sanctified these different sites, and they would build churches there, and the, his house did become a church. It may have been the very first church building on earth, but that, they began to identify those, and same with Jesus of Nazareth. Archaeologists have identified the house that Jesus grew up in, in Nazareth, with a high degree of certainty. Now, if you want to read about this, I read about it in Eric Metaxas' book, Is Atheism Dead? And he's got a whole section there on archaeology, so pretty interesting stuff. None of that really has anything to do with the point that I'm making this morning, but I wanted to sort of slip it in because of its apologetic value. Sometimes folks who are, are watching, they're skeptics. 
They may not actually be believers or they're wavering in their faith. And I want us to understand as, as we go through the Gospel of Luke and we look at these things, we're talking about real people, real events that took place at real times and in real places. Peter's house is a real place. But really the application that I want to make is unconventional house. Because there are things that were taking place there that we're going to read about here that we normally think of as taking place in church buildings. Okay, Religious teaching, healing, forgiveness, salvation. But this was taking place in Peter's house. His house was actually a ministry center. And think about it, our houses can, do, can function in the same way. There's just something disarming about being invited into someone's home, that very environment. When you go into someone's home, they've had you over for dinner, maybe to play board games. You, know, you're, you go in there and it just breaks down barriers. Or you have somebody over into your home, for instance, it breaks down barriers. I went with a group of minister friends back in the 1980s to a mega church in Boston to see what all they were doing. And at that time, they had their Sunday services in the Boston Garden Arena, 15,000-seat arena. But they couldn't always get it every Sunday, and the Sunday that we were there, they could not get the garden. And I was kind of disappointed because I'd never been to Boston. I'd never been to the Boston Garden. But so we were, they would meet in house churches when they couldn't meet in that arena. So we were directed to one of the scores of house churches that they had there in Boston. And, and once I got in, I wasn't really disappointed after all. There was about 30 of us, and we were crammed into a row house. And I still remember the ambiance there and the warmth, the teaching that the house church leader gave. And we had communion, and we sang songs, and we fellowship, and we had refreshments. And I've been to thousands of church services, and most of them, frankly, I, I, I don't always remember. But that was 40 years ago, and I remember that service. And a lot of it has to do with the fact we were in somebody's home. Somebody's home. Eric Metaxas, in his book that I just mentioned, Is Atheism Dead?, says this about Peter's home. The building's key role in understanding how Christianity began was confirmed by more than 100 graffiti scratched into the church's walls. Now, to me, that sounds like they had a youth group. That's the kids in there graffitiing up the walls. Most of the inscriptions say things like, Lord Jesus, help thy servant, or Christ have mercy. That actually sounds like the youth sponsors right there. Help! And there are sometimes, these uh, graffiti is sometimes accompanied by etchings of crosses, or in one case, a boat. The name of Peter is mentioned in several graffiti. Peter's wife probably saying, that's why we can't have nice things, Peter. But regardless... The home was a ministry center. I know a lot of the homes in this church, this congregation, function just that way, like a ministry center. You have life groups and Bible studies in your homes. Your homes are centers of hospitality. They're open for people to come in, inviting neighbors or friends, showing them the love of Christ through hospitality, not as an ulterior motive, but as an ultimate motive. Whether they ever come to Christ or not or to church, we just want to reflect the love of Christ through our homes. Maybe more of our homes can function that way. Alright, so we're talking about the unconventional journey today, and that's an unconventional home. And then secondly, unconventional friends. Unconventional friends. Verse 17, Luke 5, 17. Some men came, carrying a paralyzed man on a sleeping mat. They tried to take him inside Jesus, but they couldn't reach him because of the crowd. 
So they went up to the roof and took off some tiles. And then they lowered the, the, the sick man on his mat down into the crowd right in front of Jesus. Unconventional friends. I mean, these are some dedicated buddies to this paralyzed man. We don't know how exactly they heard about Jesus. I get the sense they weren't from the area, but maybe one of them had witnessed a healing. The verses just preceding these talk about Jesus healing of a leper. Now that would have been big news. Lepers weren't, they simply were incurable. Nobody healed lepers. That hadn't happened for hundreds of years. Jesus healed a leper. Maybe one of these friends, Mark adds the detail, there were four friends there. Maybe one of them had witnessed that healing and immediately he thought of his paralyzed buddy. He says, well, I've got to go get my friend. We're going to bring him to see Jesus and see if he can be healed. Don't know how the paralyzed man felt about it back in that day. Paralysis, a physical challenge like that could be a, a death sentence for the government programs, no wheelchairs. If you didn't have family or friends who were dedicated to meeting your needs and helping you to survive, it wasn't going to work out well. But these friends, these four friends, sound like that kind of a band of brothers who would do anything for their buddy. And they're going to get him to Jesus. And again, in the, the theology of that day, if you were born with a physical challenge like this, whether it was leprosy or blindness, paralysis, their interpretation was that you or your parents must have done something wrong. There must have been some sin, and God was mad at you, and it's kind of the curse of God. So maybe he didn't go out in public all that often. But maybe his friends didn't care. They said, come on, we're going. And you picture the scene. Now, this is Peter's house. This is a fishing village, about 1,500 people. Kids are growing up fishing and hunting, kind of a redneck town. Picture Peter's house there, some pickup trucks out front. It's standing room only, and the crowd's spilling out into the street, and these four friends are trying to get their buddy in, and they can't do it. And the, the verb here that's used indicates that they're trying over and over and over, and they just can't find a way. That's why I think maybe they were from out of town. Nobody seemed to know them. Nobody was helping them out or making way. And one of them decides, he's got this idea, let's go up on the roof, and let's tear a hole in the roof, and we'll, we'll let him down through that hole. And when we read this, maybe we put ourselves in the story, and we think, yeah, that makes sense. That's what I would have done. No. That's not what you would have done. None of us probably would have thought of that. That's a crazy idea. But that's what they're willing to do. They're that determined to get their friend before Jesus. I think these guys are like the first century equivalent of Swifties. <laughs> now, if you don't know, a Swifty is a Taylor Swift fan. And they are the most dedicated, fanatical fans out there. I was reading, and I know, Travis, this is two Taylor Swift references in one sermon. <laughs> Advanced Center for Ministry Training would grade this down from an A to a B right there for that. But nevertheless, I read some examples. Uh, Swifty, a fan, apply, they apply for jobs at the concert venue. If they can't get tickets, they'll work in the concession stand. They'll go as a janitor. They'll be security just so they can be on the premises when the concert is taking place. One fan waited 16 hours in freezing weather in San Francisco. There was an earthquake while she was in line, and she stayed in line through the earthquake. She said, I'd do it again, completely worth it. Speaking of earthquakes, Swifties dancing at a Seattle concert last year registered seismic activity 
of a 2.3 magnitude earthquake on the Richter scale. That's just the fans jumping up and down there at the concert. One fan convinced her mom to go to mass, to go to mass to pray for her and her friends to get tickets. She said she didn't have a direct line to God, but she knew her mom did, so she convinced her mom. And laid church ladies here. I'm thinking this might be a, an, an interesting side hustle. Want to raise money for missions, maybe we can hire out our church ladies to pray for Swifties to get tickets to the concert. I don't know. Say what you will about her fans, though. They are dedicated. They are determined. And that's what these four friends were. They were dedicated and committed to their buddy. Now, Kyle Outerman calls this attitude wreck the roof. A wreck the roof attitude. He said our churches need to wreck the roof. And that is in the sense that have a willingness to do whatever it takes to reach one more person for the Lord. Even if it's a little unconventional. Even if there's a little fuss and muss. That we don't just do the same old things in the same old ways because that's the way we've always done them. We're willing to flex. We're willing to change. We're willing to innovate. We even encourage that even if it fails sometimes. We're willing to wreck the roof for one more person and be committed to them to get them before Jesus. Some people may say, Steve, it sounds like you're about to announce some big change in the church. Well, I'm not. But we just want to kind of have that attitude amongst us in advance. And truly, this congregation has a a good history of that, being receptive to change. We've changed all kinds of things. We've changed uh, the number of our services. We've changed the times of our services, we've changed the style of our music, and we've changed how we do offering, and how we do communion, how we do the invitation. We've changed where we've met at different locations. We met for a whole year at the Cox Gifford Funeral Home, and that was a great period of growth for our church. People were dying to get in, and that's where all the cool people were. When I straightened them out, they stayed straight, I know that. But a willingness to change. Wreck the roof. When I was when I was reading about this, I thought of uh, Minty Ross. Minty Ross was uh, born in 1822 in Maryland on a plantation. She was the daughter of slave parents, and she was raised in slavery. But she also raised in the Methodist church. Strong, strong faith. When she was 22 years old, she decided God did not want her to live in slavery. And so she ran away. She, made, she knew the, the farm next over was a, were Quakers. The Quakers were early abolitionists. And they took her in and sheltered her overnight, and then they sent her down to the next Quaker farm. And gradually, through, through different trails and paths and river crossings and homes and hideouts, she made her way to Philadelphia and freedom. Philadelphia freedom. Menti Ross says her first two or three days there of freedom were like heaven. Breathing free air, the sun seemed to be golden, felt so great, until it didn't. She couldn't stop thinking of all the people that she loved and cared about were still in slavery back there in Maryland. And so she again decided that God wanted to use her. So five foot tall woman, illiterate slave, God wanted to use her to help lead 
those folks out of slavery and into freedom. She was going to do whatever it took. She made 17 trips from Philadelphia back to Maryland and brought 70 former slaves with her into freedom. She gave directions to another 70 in addition to that. Over 100 people owed their freedom to Minty Ross. It was risky. It was a bounty on her head. She carried a pistol for self-defense. But she says, I always told God, if I'm going to hold steady on you and you've got to see me through. She was known as the Black Moses of her people. Now, Minty Ross, when she married, she changed both her first and her last name. She changed her first name to Harriet and her last name to what? Tubman. Harriet Tubman. A roof wrecker to reach people who needed freedom. And now you know the rest of the story. Yeah. We want to be a roof wrecker. Everybody needs a band of brothers, a group of friends like this who care about them, who will do anything for you. And when your faith maybe wavers a little bit, who will lend you some of their faith? They were kind of lending their friend their faith. Jesus recognized the faith of the friends and performed the healing. And we can be that friend to other people as well. Wreck the roof. All right, so... Just talking about unconventional journey today. Unconventional house, unconventional friends, and finally, an unconventional Savior. Unconventional Savior. Luke 5.20, seeing their faith, Jesus said to the man, young man, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. That's the first thing he said to him. You can almost picture, you got the four friends up there on the roof. They're looking down the hole and they're listening to what Jesus says. They hear Jesus say, young man, your sins are forgiven. And you might imagine one of them yelling down, He's paralyzed. He needs healing. But Jesus has his own perspective. He's got an eternal perspective. And he prioritizes. He knows what this man's greatest need is. Now he's sympathetic. He's compassionate. Anybody with a physical challenge. But he knows that his greatest need is a spiritual need. Ultimately what he needs is to be forgiven. No matter what. All of us have some kind of physical challenge, but no matter what those are, our greatest need is a spiritual need. It's forgiveness. It's eternal life. Jesus knows that. That's why I would call him kind of unconventional here. But, we read on, verse 21, but the Pharisees and teachers of religious law said to themselves, who does he think he is? That's blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. And Jesus knew what they were thinking. So he asked them, why do you question this in your hearts? Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or stand up and walk? So I will prove to you that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, Stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. And immediately, as everyone watched, the man jumped up, picked up his mat, and he went home praising God. So Jesus tells him to go home. We don't know exactly why, but you can kind of surmise. Is there something great that's going to happen when he goes home that day? When he walks through his parents' door for the first time, not carried through, he walks through. And he says, Mom, Dad, I want to tell you something. What happened to me is not because God is mad at you. And it's not because God is mad at me. And something amazing happened to me over in Peter's house today. What a celebration must have taken place in that home. He was somebody's son. Everybody in here is somebody's son or daughter. 
and a lot of us in here have family members who have been paralyzed by guilt, shame, fear, and sin. And they need to have an encounter with Jesus. Sons or daughters, brothers or sisters, spouses, parents. And they won't listen to us because we're family. And oh, they're, sometimes they're closed off to family. And so we're praying that God will send them a friend. It wasn't the family that took this man to Jesus. It was friends. That God will send them a friend into their sphere of influence, into their orbit that will influence them for the Lord. That will be a roof wrecker. That will have an attitude where they'll do whatever it takes to get that person to Jesus. We're praying for that. In the article, Does My Son Know You? Sports writer Jonathan Charks wrote of his battle with terminal cancer and his desire for others to care well for his wife and young son after he passed. The 34-year-old wrote the piece just six months prior to his death. Charks, whose father had died when he was young, shared scripture in the article that speaks of care for widows and orphans. And then he says this, When I see you in heaven, there's only one thing I'm going to ask. Were you good to my son and my wife? Does my son know you? Every person who walks through our doors is somebody's son or daughter. And for many of them, they have family who are praying for them. Family who are praying for them. Please let them encounter someone who will influence them for the Lord. And when they get to heaven and when we get to heaven, they're going to ask, Does my son know you? my daughter know you? Did you use that encounter to move them closer to God? The same prayer we're praying for our family members, we can be the answer to somebody else's prayer. Some other father, some other mother, we can answer that prayer. Finally, verse 26. Everyone was gripped with exciting, great wonder and awe, and they praised God exclaiming, we have seen amazing things today. What a great experience this must have been. What a memorable experience. Something we all probably would love to be a part of. Just makes us want to ask the question, where can I go to see amazing things like this? Where can I go where they're willing to wreck the roof? Where can I go to see people released from bondage to guilt and fear and shame? To see people forgiven. Where can I go? Do you know a place like that? The Pharisees and religious teachers of the law who were present, they made that objection. We read it. Only God can forgive sin, they said. Only God can forgive sin. This is blasphemy. So they were right and they were wrong. They were right. Only God can forgive sin. But they were wrong in not believing that Jesus is the Son of God. And he can forgive sin. Jesus, the greatest roof wrecker of all time. He wrecked the roof of the elites in his culture. He wrecked the roof of the Pharisees. He wrecked the roof of the lawyers. He wrecked the roof of the common man. He wrecked the roof in the temple. He wrecked the roof of earth like a glass ceiling. He comes crashing through from heaven to do whatever it takes to win the forgiveness of you and me.